Mary was born in the village of Wardle, Wardle, in Lancashire, not very far at all from Manchester. In fact, about 12 miles north northeast, about 40 miles in a straight line to Liverpool, about half that distance to Leeds, which is in Yorkshire, in exactly the opposite direction from Liverpool. Now, today, Wardle isn't any kind of destination. It's a pretty typical small English town. The homes there are virtually all either semi-detached or they're terraced homes, row houses. The streets in some places are impossibly narrow. Some of them are cobblestoned. Of course, Britain, very historic. And there are dry stone walls, stone fences in the countryside. They're a couple of hundred years old, those dry stone walls. There's a village church, which is today an ecumenical congregation, And that's because the other churches in the very secular town have closed down. And an ecumenical village congregation is just about the only way a church can survive and be viable. Former churches have been shut down. They've been converted for other purposes today. Mary was born in Wardle in 1864. At the time, Victoria was the queen. And along with other nations, Britain was warring with Japan. Now, on the other side of the Atlantic... This side of the Atlantic, Abraham Lincoln was president and the Civil War was raging. When Mary was a girl, about 12, her family moved to the United States and settled in Wisconsin. She married at the age of 23. Now she was going by her middle name, Helen. She was quite a musician, performing and teaching music in southeast Wisconsin and in Chicago, Illinois. After the death of her husband, Helen turned her attention to religious music, Christian music. And eventually, she wrote more than 500 hymns and poems. She was involved in music ministry in conjunction with a major Billy Sunday crusade. And then in 1904, she moved to the Pacific Northwest and settled in Seattle. Now, in 1918, a friend gave her a tract written by a young woman who had gone to North Africa to be a missionary among Muslims. Now, this young woman had been quite an artist and had been mentored by, by the foremost British art critic of the 19th century, a man who'd been a close friend of the great preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Now, that man said that this young woman would become the greatest living painter and do things that would be immortal. That's how good she was. But she left it all behind to serve Jesus in a difficult mission field. She went to Algeria, and the tract that she wrote that Helen read made a great impact on Helen, and it's even made an impact on you. The tract was called Focused, and it spoke of a dandelion, describing how when the sun comes up, that dandelion is so filled with sunlight that it seems to shine, radiating the light that it's filled with. And then the tract said, So then, turn your eyes upon him. Look full into his face, and you will find that the things of earth will acquire a strange new dimness. Helen Howarth Lemmel, inspired by what she had just read, sat down and wrote a song that was initially called The Heavenly Vision. But of course, we know it better today as Turn your eyes upon Jesus. 
great advice. We will open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, and we will start in verse 1, where it says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now let's look at this passage. In reality, these two verses belong more appropriately in Hebrews chapter 11. Paul starts by saying, wherefore, or, or which basically means therefore. That is, based on what we've just looked at, and what a chapter we've just looked at, the great faith chapter of the Bible, Hebrews 11, it starts, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. By it, the elders obtained a good report, the elders, men of old, the people of past ages, they obtained a good report by faith. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. So the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Now, this is powerful stuff. And not that I mean to digress, but let's remember that when you're dealing with creation evolution, of course, there are many wonderful scientific reasons why we believe creation. There are many. Have you looked at a human eye, for example? A retina in your eye has 120 million rods. Now, rods are photoreceptors. The rods help you to see in low light, and owing to their position in the outer area of the retina, they give you your peripheral vision. Now, there are six or seven million cones or cone cells in your retinas, in addition to the 120 million rods. And the cones are the reasons that you see different colors. They function best in brighter light. Now, think about that. If these fail, the rods and the cones, your vision's going to be seriously affected. Now imagine this. What if there were half as many rods, twice as many cones, or 10% of the rods and half as many cones? Can you tell me that these really evolved? Were there once one rod and one cone in each eye, and suddenly one day there were two rods, and, and then a child was born with three cones in his or her eye? You know, evolution believes in a series of mutations occurring. So what that means is that maybe there were once no rods, no cones, and something went wrong. And a child was born with both rods and cones fully functioning or badly functioning. And over millions of years, because of more mutations, they improved. You would have to suspend your belief in science to believe that this happened. You're going to tell me that that saliva just happened, the body didn't have it, and then there was a mutation, that is something went wrong, and lo and behold, as a result of that mutation, the human being now had saliva. What did people do before? You're not going to be able to eat without it. Digestion will be all shot to pieces. You know that in your eye, when you blink, there are layers that coat your eye. Every time you blink, three layers, you know what they're made of. An optometrist just told me this, a bright man, a doctor. They're made of, no, 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 his assistant, a bright lady. 
They're made from mucus, water, and oil. Oil is the outer layer. Tell me how it just evolved like that. Was it originally just mucus? Everyone's eyes were constantly mucky, but then one day a child was born with the eye secreting both mucus and water. Just one child now, and somehow that was passed on to future generations. And then sometime in the future, the body mutated again, and a child was born with eye secreting, voila, mucus, water, and oil every time the child blinked. And that mutation was passed on. Oh, come on, you're not seriously going to believe that. We have science and common sense testifying that creation is sensible. Now, I warrant you, I cannot prove creation. I wasn't there at the time. I didn't see it. I don't have a video of creation taking place. But what do I have? I have Scripture. And God has given me every reason to believe the Bible. Although we have a plethora of great, reliable, eminently sensible thoroughly scientific reasons to believe creation, the Bible writer tells us it is faith, ultimately, that tells us that the worlds were framed. What we see made by the things that we don't see. Faith tells us that. I can believe this and more because I trust the Word of God. Abel's offering, Enoch's translation, Noah's ark, Abraham's response to God's call, Sarah's motherhood, Isaac's near-death experience, Jacob's blessings, Joseph's posthumous journey, Moses, the Red Sea crossing, the walls of Jericho, Rahab, Gideon, David, Samuel, others, based on this, Hebrews chapter 12 begins, surrounded with witnesses like these, let us lay aside the weight, let us put aside the sin that so easily besets us, and let us run with patience. The race set before us. The Bible writer was using a very carefully selected figure of speech there as he alluded to the ancient games. Every one of his readers would have caught the point. He was capitalizing on their familiarity with those ancient games to make his point. The games were a big deal. So when Paul wrote to the Galatians and said, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. Galatians 2 verse 2. When he wrote to the Philippians and said, Holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Philippians 2.16. When he wrote to Timothy and said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. 2 Timothy 4 verse 7. When he wrote those verses, those words, his readers got the point every time. As an athlete runs in the stadium filled with spectators, that runner is encouraged to give everything she's got, everything he's got to press on to the finish. In fact, the word stadium comes from the name of one of those ancient athletic events. And Paul is writing, as you run the Christian race, the witness of the faithful of all ages looks to you, in the metaphorical sense, of course, These sleeping saints were cognitively aware of nothing. But the eyes of history are on you, he writes. Paul wrote those words as a continuation of the preceding verse. Hebrews 11 and verse 40. That's where he said, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Of course 
Their eyes are on you, saints. They're waiting for us. They won't be completed without us, Paul writes. We are going on to glory together. So they have a vested interest in what we are doing here right now. Paul suggests, let us lay aside every weight. You know how important this thing is in sports. I grew up far too close to horse racing, and I learned at a very young age that they handicap racehorses based on weight. If a horse is especially good, it will be handicapped to carry more weight than other horses because that weight weighs it down, slows it down. Back in 2008, swimmers wearing specially designed body-length swimsuits that reduced skin friction began swimming faster than swimmers had ever swum. It wasn't so much a reduction in weight, but it was a reduction in drag. Some called them space-age swimsuits. Thirteen world records were broken like that. Reducing drag was so effective that some people referred to it as technical doping. See, you want to lay aside the weight. Athletes don't run in baggy shirts and, and, and long shorts. They do everything they can to cut down on drag to eliminate weight. No athlete's going to run a marathon with their phone in one pocket and their wallet in the other. You lay aside the weight. And the writer says, let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Now, the word patience is frequently translated as endurance. And that's the same word as you see in Revelation 14, 12. Here is the patience of the saints. And then he writes this. We run with patience, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Looking unto Jesus. Where you look matters a lot. Where you look affects things. You know, when you are driving on the freeway, you typically don't look right ahead of your car. You look where you're going. When you drive into a bend on a windy road, you don't look three feet in front of the automobile. You look where you're going. And then your hands coordinate with your eyes to guide that car around the corner. You know it's important where you look. This is why we are told not to text and drive, because it matters where you look. When you drive a vehicle, you've got to be vigilant, because there are things going on. It matters where you look. A professor of kinesiology at a Canadian university in Calgary, Alberta, in fact, found that elite golfers have a common pattern of fixation of their eyes during a shot that's different to an average player. It results in better ball striking. Average players don't hold their gaze on the ball for as long as elite players before taking the club back. Now, this researcher, she found that the most important factor in the difference in ball striking, listen, was the length of fixation on the ball 
right before the shot. Let's pause and think about that. The difference in ball striking was the length of the fixation on the ball. What are we being encouraged to do? To fix our eyes on Jesus. I would suggest to you that the difference in Christian experience between one person and another comes down to the length of fixation on Jesus from day to day. You know what your devotional time really is? It's time to fix your eyes on Jesus. That's what it is. That's why we begin each day with our noses in the Bible, our knees on the floor, our minds being connected to the mind of God. Because as we fix our minds on Jesus, it affects our daily lives. Football players and baseball players catching a ball? No. They've been told by the coach a thousand times, keep your eye, keep your eye on the ball. Where you look matters. What are you looking at? What are you focusing on in the Christian life? What did the young missionary write? That's our hymn writer's, not her friend, but the woman who wrote the track that the hymn writer got. This young woman was named Lilius Trotter. That was her name. And incidentally, she was raised in a very well-to-do family, raised in a very nice part of London in Marylebone, about halfway between Hyde Park here and Regent's Park there, very close to Mayfair, which is very nice. What did she write? So then turn your eyes upon him. Look full into his face. And you will find that the things of earth will acquire a strange new dimness. So there are several things I want to think about with you here. First, turn your eyes. Or as the Bible writer said, looking unto Jesus. Now let's keep something in mind. Inherent in that directive is the idea that to look to Jesus is a choice. Likewise, to not look to Jesus is a choice. You get to choose who or what you look at. You get to choose whether or not discouragement is going to turn you away from looking at Jesus, or whether faith will say, in spite of my circumstances, I'm going to look to Jesus anyway. You get to choose whether mistakes in your life, whether sin will prevent you from looking in the direction of Jesus. Happens so very often. Somebody stumbles and falls, gets gets discouraged and says, I quit. Why go on? Why be a hypocrite? Oh, come on, man. If you recognize you're a sin, you're not a hypocrite. If you recognize you're a sinner, you're not a hypocrite. If you recognize that you're broken, you're not a hypocrite. You're weak is what you are. We're all weak. Keep on looking at Jesus. A typical rosebush is frankly a hideous sort of thing in that if all you look at are the thorns, it's not very attractive. If you look past the thorns and focus on those beautiful flowers, you may discern that roses are very beautiful. Now let's try to apply this just a little bit. Looking unto Jesus. All right, where is Jesus? He's in heaven. Okay, but where? He is, according to Scripture, in the heavenly sanctuary. Very good. And what's he doing there? He is interceding for us there. And why is he doing that? Because he, Christ Jesus, 
is our heavenly high priest. Now, where is heaven? Let me ask you, where is it? Your answer is, it's up there. And you're right. But I'm going to say, up where? Because as I look up, you know what I see? I see the ceiling. Is that where heaven is? No. Well, let's look beyond the ceiling. Let's look up into the trees. Is Jesus up there? No. Is he up in the hills? No. In fact, the psalm writer wrote, I will lift mine eyes under the hills. But he said, my help doesn't come from the hills. My help comes from the Lord who made the hills, who made heaven and earth. Think of all the things you can see when you look up. If you're a little shorter, you'll look up and you'll see other people. If you look up, you'll see bright lights. If you look up, you'll see signs and billboards and advertising hoardings. If you look up, you'll see trees and clouds and the sky. You may even perceive pollution in the air, depending on where you live. But we have a problem if that's all you're seeing. You are still not looking high enough. Looking unto Jesus, the Bible says. And where is he? He is in the heavenly sanctuary. He is high up above the things of this world. Now, I don't know if many people even talk like this anymore. Used to talk like this in the past. We really don't want to be, here's an old-fashioned word, worldly. We really don't. If you're looking at the world, you're not looking high enough. Of course, we live in this world. We don't have too many options about that right now. But we don't want to be too much like the world. We can't discuss this without mentioning that very biblical concept that by beholding, you become changed. You become like what you focus on. That's just the truth. A Canadian motivational speaker stated, the law of concentration states that whatever you dwell upon grows. The more you think about something, the more it becomes part of your reality. Now, while meaning no disrespect, I don't quote him as an authority, but to show you that even secular people recognize this. Scientists will tell you about something called experience-dependent neuroplasticity, which refers to the brain's capacity to change in response to experience in response to repeated stimuli or environmental cues and learning. It's a fundamental property of brain function, they say. Did you get that? This, this neuroplasticity, experiential neuroplasticity, is a fundamental property of brain function. A psychologist at the University of California said this, Imagine your mind is like a garden, he said. You could simply... Be with it, looking at its weeds and flowers without judging or changing anything. Or you could pull weeds by decreasing what's negative in your mind. Or you could grow flowers by increasing the positive in your mind. In essence, you can manage your mind in three primary ways. Let be, let go, or let in. That's interesting, isn't it? He said, the brain is the organ that learns. So it is designed, I love that word, to be changed by your experiences. It still amazes me, but it's true. 
whatever we repeatedly sense and feel and want and think, he writes, is slowly but surely sculpting neurostructure. As you read this, in the five cups of tofu-like tissue inside your head, nested amidst a trillion support cells, 80 to 100 billion neurons are signaling each other in a network with about half a quadrillion connections called synapses. All this incredibly fast, complex, and dynamic neural activity is continually changing your brain. I'll give you one more. This is from an article published by UC Berkeley. Intense, prolonged, or repeated mental neural activity, especially if it's conscious, will leave an enduring imprint in neural structure, like a surging current reshaping a riverbed. In the saying in neuroscience, neurons that fire together wire together. Mental states become neural traits. Day after day, your mind is building your brain. That's what the science says. What you focus on literally changes your mind, changes your brain. Imagine then, focusing less on garbage and focusing more on Jesus. And look at this big picture. We are living in what have to be the latter days of this earth's history. We are careening headlong towards a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. God's people will soon be living on this earth while there is no mediator in the heavenly sanctuary. And don't misunderstand that. No mediator does not mean there's no Holy Spirit, but more on that another time. This is why the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 5, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. We want to be growing in our faith, coming closer to Jesus in our faith, increasing in our faith, preparing for heaven, getting ready to leave this world behind. And so, therefore, we want to be looking unto Jesus. Looking unto Jesus. After Peter and John had been arrested and imprisoned in Acts 4, after 5,000 men of those who heard the word believed, Peter testified, saying, Neither is there salvation in any other, For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Think about this. What a transformation had taken place in foot in mouth, Peter. I don't know the man, Peter. The next verse says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Looking to Jesus changed Peter. And I'll say this, Peter's problem until now hadn't only been that he failed to look to Jesus. Peter had spent three and a half years with Jesus. He'd been looking to Jesus day in and day out. But now Peter was finally learning to look away from himself 
It was learning to let doubt and fear melt away. He was looking to Jesus now, looking away from himself now. And it was changing the brother's life. No, I don't know what they were doing telling this to children at a Catholic elementary school. But I remember being told the story from Greek mythology about the Gorgon, Medusa. Angry Athena turned Medusa's hair into venomous snakes. And anyone who looked into Medusa's eyes would turn to stone. Terrible story. Traumatizing story. Absolutely no truth to it, of course. But the point was, looking to Medusa would impact you. Looking to Medusa would have a negative effect on you. Looking to Medusa would be hazardous to your well-being. The point of the Bible is that looking to Jesus is completely the opposite. It will save your life, change your life, remake your life. Now remember this. If you're going to look to Jesus, this suggests looking. I'm talking about focusing, not staring blankly. Not that. You've seen someone staring blankly into the distances like that. You've said, hey, what are you looking at? They say, what, 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 what? No clue. I didn't know what, I didn't know what I was looking at. They were zoning out. They were gazing at something and looking at nothing. To look to Jesus does not mean to sleep with a Bible under your pillow, hoping that you'll catch something by osmosis. Looking to Jesus doesn't mean fronting up in church and uh, surfing the internet the entire time you're sitting there. Looking to Jesus doesn't mean just tagging along to church activities. Looking to Jesus means looking. It means reading your Bible and keeping your eyes open as you do. Searching, focusing. You're looking to Jesus. I've got to tell you this story. You may have heard me tell this story before. I don't know. But it's a true story, and it's a good one, and it works exactly with what we're talking about. I was holding a series of meetings one day in a city in the state of Tennessee. This was years ago. And a lady came to me, and she said, I'd like you to talk to my husband. I said, sure. I mean, tell me why. Oh, he has so many problems. He's, he's such a sinner. He's far from God. He's got all these problems, all these problems. This is what she was making a big deal of. I said, I'll meet with him for sure. And so we arranged to meet, and we sat down in a little classroom on these little teeny tiny children's chairs. I can't forget that. And uh, he said to me, you know, Pastor, I know everything you're teaching. He said, I used to teach everything you're teaching. You see, his wife was a member of the church, and he had been a member of the church. I said, what happened? He said, well, you know, once we got our kids through church school, I just, I left the church. I, I knew what had happened. As soon as he said that to me, I understood the man's situation. Just, you could just read it in his face. His wife said, well, pastor, talk to him about his problems. He's got so many problems. He got so many. I was starting to wonder whether she wasn't just one of his problems because she was not helping. I said, I'm not interested in his problems. In fact, I said, I don't mind if he hangs on to his problems with both hands. It doesn't matter because we have a solution for all of that. I said to him, brother, do you have a Bible? He said, yeah, I've got a Bible somewhere, somewhere in the house. I've got a Bible. I can find a Bible easy. So would you do something for me? 
Sure, he said. Maybe, he said. This is what I'd like you to do. This won't hurt you a bit. won't cost you anything. Go home, find that Bible, take it down, and open to one of the Gospels. I don't care which one, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, it's all, all the same to me for the purpose of this. Start reading at the beginning of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And as you read, just read, just read, and look for Jesus. And when you come across Jesus, write down what he is like. Just do that. Write down what he's like. And then keep reading, keep coming across Jesus. Write down. You'll fill a page or two. And when you fill the page or two of what Jesus is like, uh, read those two pages and then ask yourself if you want Jesus in your life. Just do that. Ask yourself if that's the kind of person you want to have in your life. We prayed. They left. A few days later, the man's daughter spoke to me. Pastor, have you heard what happened? No. Dad went home just as you encouraged him to do and got the Bible out and started reading. And he filled a couple of pages with descriptions of Jesus. And he read through those couple of pages and he said to himself, I would be a fool not to have that man in my life. What had he done? He had looked to Jesus. That's all he'd done. But he was looking. I mean, looking with his eyes open. When you pray, think. You'll hear someone pray, uh, Dear Lord, um, thank, you for the, thank you for this day, and, uh, and thank, you for, uh, thank you for the life. And, uh, no, no, pray. Engage your mind. Jesus is a real person. He actually exists. He'll talk to you. He's listening to you. You are looking to Jesus. You're seeking him. You're walking in the woods and you're asking yourself, where do I see Jesus here? What miracles of creation can I see around here? Where do I discern the goodness of God? You look back on a day asking yourself where God intervened. What happened today? Where did I see Jesus today? You see what I'm saying? We miss many blessings when we don't look for them. We miss a lot of Jesus when we ignore him in our life. Look unto Jesus. And remember what the verse says, looking unto Jesus. If you're looking at people, you're going to be disappointed. Our administrators, they're lousy. Of course, not your administrators. This is just an illustration. No, they're not lousy. In all likelihood, they're outstanding. But I'll tell you that very definitely they are human. What were you expecting from administrators? Were you expecting perfection? Well, I'm just so disappointed. Of course you are, but you needn't be. The church militant is not the church triumphant, someone once said. There are people in my church who, well, I suspect there are, and you are probably one of them. But if the people in your church are your standard, you are setting your standards very low. You wouldn't believe how our pastor, oh, of course I would believe how your pastor. I am one. What you wouldn't believe is what many pastors have to deal with. But they deal with it out of love for God and because they want to see you saved. See, if you're looking at administrators or church members or pastors, you're disregarding what we read in Hebrews chapter 12. We are to look to Jesus. That's where our gaze is to be. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Let your mind be remade. Let your character be reformed. You will be changed into the image of Jesus. 
It's interesting that the author of the hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, lost the use of her own eyes. Helen Howarth Lemmel became blind later in life. And that hardship was compounded by her husband abandoning her. She knew what it was to experience loss, but she stayed faithful to God. She died in 1961 at the age of 97. And until the very end of her life, she was a trusting, committed Christian, attending church in the suburb of Ballard, a mile from Puget Sound, northwest of central Seattle. You know, about 60 miles in a straight line from where I'm standing right now is a spot called Huckleberry Knob. Even though it's at 5,600 feet, it's a pretty straightforward hike from the road. Now, a couple I know hiked to Huckleberry Knob a few months ago. But they arrived at the top of Huckleberry Knob right around the same time as some hostile weather. So it was decided one would go down the trail to the vehicle, the other would pack up the gear and follow later. But the one who went down the trail to the vehicle happened to have a very bad sense of direction. She somehow managed to get herself completely turned around and walked in exactly the wrong direction. Well, before long, she realized she was Well, not exactly lost. She knew she was in North Carolina, so there was that. But she was certainly not where she needed to be. So she prayed. She thought. She thought. And she turned around and hiked in the opposite direction, hoping that she was heading to the car. But Within a few minutes, she spotted something that made everything okay. On the way up to the campsite, hiking to the top of Huckleberry Knob, they'd seen a cross, a very obvious cross. Not a huge cross, but large enough. It was marking a grave, a grave that had sat there on Huckleberry Knob for well over a 100 years. And as she walked, this time in the right direction, there it was again, the cross. And she thought to herself, now that I've seen the cross... I know that I can find my way back. Friend, if you can see the cross of Jesus, you're looking in the right direction. Look to Jesus now. Let him be your hope. Let beholding Jesus change you into his image. Let focusing on Jesus make you a new you. It's late in the history of the world. There isn't time for wasting time. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Look to the cross upon which Jesus died. And you can know that Jesus will lead you home. Could you make a decision now to fix your eyes on Jesus? Hey, John, I made that decision a thousand times. My eyes are all over the place. Okay. We're going to make a slightly different decision then this time. We're going to decide to surrender our attention our focus, our eyes to God and allow Him to fix them where they need to be. We're going to ask Him to let His Spirit fill us and guide our lives so that our focus, our eyes, our mind is fixed on Him 
So we're going to be changed more and more by what we focus on. If we look to Jesus, he will grow us. Thank God for that neuroplasticity so that our minds can be reshaped, reformed, remade. God will make you everything he wants you to be if you'll let him do so. Can I pray for you? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for Jesus. We would like to tell you that from now on we're going to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We can't tell you that. We can tell you that we want to. We ask you to take our eyes, our minds, our will, our intent, fix it all on you. Give us quietness in this moment to say, Lord Jesus, take my heart. Let my gaze be fixed where it should be fixed. Let my will be yielded to your will. We thank you. We trust you. We praise you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for joining me. It's been great to spend this time with you in the Word.